The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, good evening. Because there aren't so many, do you guys want to come a little bit closer instead of like being, you know, you can move wherever you want, but just, you know, maybe bring a chair in a little bit closer. And actually it's better if you're not on top of this blue line right here. So you can be on either side of the, yeah, there you go. Thank you. And then maybe I'll begin by um, apologizing by about last week. Maybe some of you on YouTube or some of you here. I, um, I had to cancel at the last minute. I had laryngitis. And I'm hoping that my voice holds up. It's uh, Surprisingly, I still have it here a little bit a week later. So apologies for last minute having to cancel on Monday, last Monday. So today I'd like to continue on this theme that I've been doing, talking about like, what is the Dharma? Like we have this expression, you know, the Dharma, and I think we all have a sense of what it is, but I've been poking around a little bit and what does the Buddha say explicitly when he says, like, you know, this is the Dharma, or I'm going to proclaim the Dharma, and it's, um, you know, it's this. And I have been looking at this, like on some of the earlier talks, through stories. I've been in the story of Ratapala, that was a few weeks ago, and the story of Kisa Gotami, talking about the Dharma. And tonight I had intended to use this other story, but as I was really working with this story, I kind of like, you know, this story really doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So I think I'm going to like abbreviate uh, a part of it and really emphasize the part where the Buddha is talking about uh, the Dharma. I'll abbreviate the part of like how it gets that this person is asking. And part of the reason why I feel okay about doing this is because this story is from the last section of the Parayanavaga. This is a part of the suttas that uh, scholars think that is like the oldest part of the Buddhist literature. And for some people, this is really meaningful because if it's oldest, that means it's the closest to the time of the Buddha. Not everybody thinks it's that meaningful, but some people do. And then maybe I'll just say why they think it's the oldest is because elsewhere in the Pali Canon, they talk about the what's said in the Parayanavaga. Sometimes the Buddha asks, I think he asks Ananda, hey, do you know about this verse that's in the para, para, Parayanavaga? So he's, or he asks Sariputta, he asks different people. So we know it's old because... It's referred to from back then. But there's a, there's a part of the story that comes at the beginning 
that has a completely different flavor. The poly is a little bit different. And everybody thinks, oh, this is its own little standalone story that got tacked on on the beginning. And that's the part that I think I'll abbreviate here a little bit. But one thing that's interesting and why I kind of like chose to do this, uh, this, uh, oh, Parayanavaga, I'll translate it, um, chapter on the way to the beyond. So, like, how do you get there somewhere else other than here? The beyond being kind of like, you know, Nibbana, complete freedom. So I'm going to, I'll talk about this and I'll say um, a little bit that this is my own rendition. I've done a little bit of tweaking, looking at the Pali, looking at what different translators have done, as well as wanting to make it accessible. So maybe I'll, um, I'll just say it starts with this first part, is there is a Brahmin who, you know, at the earlier time, at the time of the Buddha, the dominant religious tradition was the Brahmins. So we could think of it as like proto-Hinduism. And they had a real uh, emphasis on rituals. Like you could please the gods by doing rituals. And if things weren't going your way, it's because either you hadn't done the right rituals or you there was a mistake in them. And the rituals were done by the Brahmins, like the priestly caste. So people would ask, you know, the priest to do rituals for something. And then the Buddha comes along and is really something very different than rituals. You know, just this uh, belief that certain movements or certain words are what's needed to make the world go correctly or to end suffering or something like that. So a really different emphasis. And so there's this uh, one Brahmin, his name is Bhavari, and he has a, uh, I'd say it's like a hermitage, and he um, wants to do a ritual, and and he spends all his money to do this ritual. It's a I don't know all the details of like what's required, but you know, like everything he has, he puts towards this. Maybe he's believing that that then you know his life is going to go okay. So after he does this, he goes back to uh, this hermitage, and there's this other person that shows up there that looks a little unkept, and they talk about how his feet are dirty and messed up, and his hair is dirty and messed up, and his teeth. And uh, Bavari says, uh, hello, <laughs> something like this. And uh, and this visiting, he doesn't ever, um, he's never given a name. Um, so he approaches the Bavari and he says, give me 500 coins. <laughs> this is kind of the way he, uh, he introduces or asks himself. And Bavari says, I can't, I don't have anything. I just gave it all to this sacrifice. And uh, this visiting Brahmin says, well, either you give me these 500 coins or 
I'm going to place this curse on you that in seven days your head will split open. So maybe, right, this is part of the Brahmanical thinking, I'm not sure. And then the visiting Brahmin leaves. And Bhavari is very worried. He's afraid, like, maybe my head's going to split open. Maybe there's some truth to this. And then, um, this is a story, right? So we don't have to take this literally, but uh, maybe we can, I don't know. But a deva, which is a disembodied entity, and a reminder, devas are just like humans, in the sense that they're not free, they're not in, they don't have a, like if they don't have, they're not awakened. So this Deva comes to Bhavari and says, um, and now I forget exactly what he says, that, um, so this benevolent um, Deva shows up and says, oh, and tells Bhavari, you know, that uh, that visitor is actually a charlatan. And actually, he doesn't really know anything about heads and head splitting. But Bhavari is still worried. And so he asks, well, if he doesn't know about head splitting, well, maybe you do. You do. So he asks the Deva, well, what, what is about head splitting? And the Deva says, I don't know either. Bhavari says, well, who knows about head splitting? Bhavari's really nervous and anxious about this. And uh, the Deva says, well, there's this person. They call him the Buddha, and he's way on this other part of India. And Bhavari says, you know, I'm too old, I can't travel there, but I have these students, I'll send them. So he sends 16 of his students to go ask, to find the Buddha and ask about head splitting. So these students have followers of their own. So this whole entourage goes all the way across uh, India. And they get to the Buddha. They check to make sure, is he really the awakened one? And they have these little tests that I won't go into. And he... Uh, Buddha passed all the tests. So then the most senior of the students asks the Buddha about head splitting. And um, it goes like this. So Ajita, who is the lead student, says to the Buddha, Bhavari asks about the head and the splitting of the head. Explain this blessed one, and remove our doubt. And then uh, the Buddha says, ignorance is the head, and non-ignorance, when combined with faith, mindfulness, concentration, zest, and energy, is the splitting of the head. Thereupon the Brahmin student lifted by great exhilaration, arranged his cloak over one shoulder, fell with his head at the Buddha's feet, and bows and says, the Brahman Bhavari, together with his students, exultant in mind, joyful, worships your feet, O one with vision. Okay, so this is a story. 
So the Buddha just says one sentence and all of this uh, exaltation and stuff. But this is the way that I'm holding it, is that they were ritualists. They were used to this idea that you have to like appease the gods and you have to behave perfectly, you know, to do these rituals. But instead to realize, oh, no, no, this is about like the head and splitting the head. What's really important is actually about what one does in terms of practice, mindfulness, faith, concentration, zest, and energy. We hear all about all these things in, in the Buddhist practice. So Ajita, Ajita and is very excited and says thank you and bows to the Buddha. And I'll confess, it's not clear to me why the head is ignorance and non-ignorance is the splitting of the head. We could say splitting of the head is like having an open mind. But I think that would be more like a modern interpretation. I'm not sure that they had that back then. But we could say, well, then this curse definitely came true because uh, they had some uh, uh, some knowledge, so their heads got split open. Okay, so that's like the preamble to the story, and maybe it sets the tone a little bit about what happens next. So the Buddha says, well, you know, I'm glad I answered your question, but uh, all of you, all 16 of you, you're welcome to answer, ask me any question you like, and I'll answer it. This makes sense in the sense of if it's about knowledge and uh, uh, non-ignorance. So, you know, he's the Buddha's asking them, okay, you can ask me whatever you like. So one of the students, Metagu, goes up to the Buddha and asks him, Metagu, we can translate his name as Master of Metta. So somebody who has a lot of loving kindness, friendliness. And he goes up to the Buddha and he says, I ask you, O Blessed One, for I think you are a knowledge master and well-cultivated. Tell me this. From where has all this dukkha and its countless forces in the world and its countless forms in the world sprung? Where has all this dukkha come from? I think this is a great question. Like where, like you know, dukkha, probably you guys know, right, is this, uh, represents this big range of experiences from just a mild irritation or the sense of things not being right to just horrifying, terrifying pain. So dukkha has this wide range, often translated as suffering, but maybe even like stress or unsatisfactory or, you know, really painful. So where has all this pain come from? And the Buddha answers, of dukkha, you ask me the origin. Maybe I should say that this is all in verse. Of dukkha, you ask me the origin as one who understands I will tell you, dependent on appropriation, 
this dukkha and its countless forms in the world has sprung. Appropriation. Like we don't hear this word as much. It's this um, idea that it's a translation of the word upadi. And I like this word appropriation because it, it has this, uh, upadi has this two related means. Like what's causing, what's the origin of suffering? It's upadi is like this, uh, our acquisitions, our belongings, our possessions, we might say even like our baggage. That's one form of upadi. And the second form is the attachment to these acquisitions, this inner sense of ownership. So the Buddha is saying appropriations are a source of dukkha, the sense of acquiring things and making them mine. This attachment to them and wanting to get and and um, not only objects but creating an identity like I'm the one that has this even if it's not an exact object we could even say I'm the one who doesn't meditate well or I'm the one that meditates great look at me like appropriating the meditation experience and making it mine and making an identity out of it or even the, you know, like, I'm the one that needs to get it together. Or I'm the one that's stressed. Or, you know, whatever we take as something that to, defines us as a part of our identity. Or even it can be like this sense of ownership of like, this is my meditation period. Why is everybody else uh, making noise? Don't they know that uh, I'm? this is a precious time and I'm trying to... Uh, Concentrate and get settled. And you can notice on all these things that I'm describing that there's a sense of me versus the world or us versus them. There's this real sense of, you know, when there's a strong sense of identity, there's a real strong separation. And then when there's that, there has to be all this like protection or maybe we have to protect this me that gets created or we have to bolster it up, make sure it looks good for everybody. So upadi is like both the things one owns and this internal claim of ownership. And one way way that I like to think about this is that if we just modify the language the language that we use for ourselves. And that language is clunky. We probably wouldn't do this in regular life or conversation, but it's a way to help kind of uh, understand this point. We could say, feeling frustrated with meditation has arisen. We wouldn't say that, but feeling frustrated with meditation has arisen has a different flavor than I'm frustrated. You can feel like I'm frustrated, like it defines me and like there's nothing else happening, it's just this. So to like turn the language around, like feeling lost is happening. Instead of like I'm lost and I'm the one that has to get it together. It's like feeling lost is happening. It just kind of reminds us that these things arise and pass away there not always there and 
they don't define us, they're just experiences that we're having. So the Buddha says, of dukkha you asked me the origin. As one who understands, I will tell you, dependent on appropriation, this dukkha and its countless forms in the world has sprung. An ignorant person, so this is getting back to like head splitting and head and stuff, an ignorant person unknowingly appropriates and again and again encounters dukkha. One who understands does not appropriate seeing it as the genesis and origin of dukkha. So recognizing that accumulating, whether it's objects or identification, leads to suffering, leads to dukkha. And maybe the suffering is really subtle. But there's a way in which this, uh, it's like, it's the opposite of like letting go. It's the opposite of having freedom. It's more this like pulling towards and getting stuck is dukkha. So then, uh, Metagu, he responds, what I asked, you've explained. So he feels very happy. But I ask you another question, please tell me. How do the wise cross the flood of rebirth, old age, sorrow, and lamentation? Please, sage, answer me clearly, for truly you are one who has discovered the Dharma. How do the wise cross the flood? So maybe Metaguru is like, okay, you talked about the origin of dukkha, but how do I like not have dukkha? How do the wise cross the flood? And if we think about ancient India, right, which has monsoon seasons, in the and in the plain of the Ganges, where a lot of the Buddha's teachings was, this idea of crossing the flood was a real concern, right? There's times of the year when you simply could not get from one location to another. You had to wait for the waters to subside. But probably many of you have heard this too, that there's this well-known simile where the Buddha talks about crossing the flood, getting from here, this shore, where there's dukkha, to the other shore, which is awakening. And then how do you get there is with a raft. And the Dharma is the raft. And in this teaching, this other simile, the Buddha says, and just in the same way that you take the raft across the water, you get to the other shore, the way to the beyond, we might say. And then you're like all happy that the raft brought you there, but you don't like pick up the raft put it on your head and start walking with it once you're on the other shore. No, you leave it. It was helpful to get over the shore, but it's not helpful when you're already on land. So the Buddha is pointing to, we don't even grab or hold on to the Dharma, the raft. So the Buddha continues. So he says, um, the Metagu has asked, how do the wise cross the flood? And then the Buddha answers this question. 
I shall proclaim the Dharma to you. Seen in this very life, not involving hearsay, knowing which one may very mindfully cross over entanglement with the world. I appreciate that the Buddha is saying, I proclaim the Dharma that is seen in this very life, not on hearsay. So he's not giving metaphysical claims. He's not saying, oh, you just have to believe stuff. He's saying, no, this is something that you can experience right now. This is something that you, everybody, can see in this life, in this whatever life it is that you have now. We don't have to depend on, you know, somebody that told somebody that once knew something. Like, no, you can see this for yourself. I'm going to proclaim the Dharma that you can see. Knowing which one may faring mindfully cross over entanglement with the world. I like this word, entanglement. Like it's, this is a translation of the word Visetika, which is not a common word, we don't see so much. And it's, um, it's like related to like being interlaced with or somehow complicated or uh, to, when we're entangled, like something that's impeding us from where we want to go. It's the opposite of being, you know, disentangled. So this disentanglement is another way of talking about not appropriating, like not making things mine is a way of getting. When we make things mine is a way we get tangled up with them. So we're not saying we have to get rid of everything. We're not saying we can't have both objects and that we can't have um, identities. What's being pointed to is not getting tangled up in them in a way that there's no freedom. The Buddha is not saying, you know, don't own anything or don't get involved with the world, but just notice how you are with the world. Is there a way that you can pick up and engage with what's needed to be engaged with? Play, work, love, Discipline, you know, all these types of things. And then put them down when they're not needed or when it's not appropriate. Pick them up when it's needed and appropriate and put them down. Sometimes we get entangled and we just can't put up or pick down. We're just like stuck. Maybe some ways entangled. I kind of often imagining like a spider web or, you know, something like this, something sticky that's getting us stuck. I shall proclaim the Dharma to you, seen in this very life, not involving hearsay, knowing which one may, very mindfully, cross over entanglement with the world. So here's the Dharma that he's going to give. Expel relishing and dogmatism. Regarding everything you are aware of, above, below, all around, between. And consciousness should not take a stance in becoming. 
expel relishing and dogmatism. So again, this is kind of unpacking, what does this entanglement mean? Dogmatism, right? We can imagine it's this side like, you know, again, uh, this real uh, distinct sense of me. I'm right and you're wrong. We're right, they are wrong. This kind of, you know, this fundamentalism, this tendency to like just lay down these principles of just, you know, this is incontrovertibly true. This is just the way it is. And it's associated, like dogmatism, of course, it's associated with intolerance and arrogance. And in some ways we might even say it's a certain amount of stuckness, entanglement. And then this relishing, right, to expel relishing. I think relishing in this way is just uh, this way of like taking too much pleasure in. Maybe there's a sense of gluttony or uh, just rolling around in it in a way that's not helpful. To be sure, pleasure is a part of our life and is part of the path and joy is. But there's a way that we could just get entangled and be pursuing, you know, pleasure after pleasure after pleasure and our whole life, we're just all tangled up with this. And certainly addictions, right, are a sense of entanglement. Expel relishing and dogmatism regarding everything you are aware of. Above, below, all around, between. And then this last sentence, consciousness should not take a stance in becoming. So I'm using Tan Jeff's translation here because the Pali is a little bit weird, but we could relate this idea of becoming with this idea of me or this idea of selfing. And me, when there's a me that gets related to, there's a sense of mine. So we can see how all these ideas are getting related that it's a way in which we, um, like consciousness, not taking a stance in becoming, like not making like, here's a me here, I'm going to become this identity, the one that has problems, the one that has to meditate, the one that whatever it is you could put there. So maybe instead of this becoming this me, What's being pointed to is like to what is our visceral embodied experience? Like what's actually happening in without we having this conceptual idea or conceptual analysis or not a theoretical or abstraction, but What's being experienced? Sounds? Movement in the body as it breathes? Maybe there's a sense of tightness or openness? Maybe the activity of thinking? Maybe a little bit of discomfort in the body? Like trying to simplify here? And it turns out that our life can unfold in a way that works fine if we stay with the simplicity of our experience 
when problems need to be solved, the mind just naturally comes together and works on them and then puts them down when they're no longer needed. So this, instead of getting entangled or making things more complicated, what's being pointed to is just keeping it simple. Not being a simpleton necessarily, but recognizing that what our senses are telling us to stay there rather than always being in the head or in the mind. So the Buddha continues with this and he's saying, a person dwelling thus, mindful, heedful, having given up taking things as mine, right here, such a wise one abandons dukkha. Abandons dukkha, birth, old age, sorrow, and lamentation. Sometimes dukkha gets uh, translated that way. And then upon hearing this, Matikus says, I rejoice in the words of Gotama, the great seer. Well proclaimed was the teaching of not appropriating. Clearly, you, the blessed one, have abandoned dukkha, and this dharma is known to you. And surely those you regularly teach could also abandon dukkha. Therefore, having met you, I bow to you, O spiritual giant. Perhaps the Blessed One may regularly teach me. So he asks to become a student. And then later in another setting, we learn that he becomes awakened. So I I appreciate this uh, teaching that, you know, we hear in other settings about how what is like the source of dukkha. Often it's said like, you know, tanha is like, you know, clinging or craving. But this is pointing to another way, like what clinging is uh, associated with, or maybe it uh, fleshes out what is this idea of clinging. It's a big part of it, which goes under the radar. It's definitely more subtle. But working with the clinging of that's creating an identity, yes, it is subtle, but it's really where so much dukkha is. And the Buddha, he's really powerful, like pointing to these powerful teachings that the ending of dukkha, I mean, that's like quite something to think about, that this is possible. And it's just about our relationship to our experiences and what we're having in the world. Are we grabbing onto them, appropriating them? Are we getting entangled with them? Or are we allowing them to arise and pass away as they do? Are we allowing the experiences to come and go as they do without like placing some big conceptual framework on top of them because this experience that happened it means x y or z and everything else is wrong instead it could be well because this experience is there i'm thinking my current understanding is that it's x y and z it makes sense to me that it's x y and z 
I wonder if it is X, Y, and Z. It seems like it might be X, Y, and Z. You can see how that's very different and then saying, it is X, Y, and Z. And then we're kind of saying, I'm the one that knows it's X, Y, and Z. And then we've like set up all these barriers and uh, separation and that have to be defended and upheld and propagated. And there's all these subtle ways in which dukkha shows up. So that is the story of Metagu talking to the Buddha. And he was there talking to the Buddha because Bhavari was afraid that his head was going to get split open. And so he sent some of his students, including Metagu. So I'll end there and open it up if there are any questions or comments. Thank you. Okay. Oh, I spoke too soon. So, so what is the Dharma? <laughs> so this is, so that he is saying here, right, it's about not getting entangled, right? And what are, how many ways we get entangled, right? It's countless ways. That's the countless ways that uh, Dukkha shows up. Thousands. I would say thousands. Uh, I don't know if I fit a thousand here, but uh, because we're trying, we're, let's use a different microphone. Maybe um, you know, there's this big, wide polycanon, and teachers give lots of dharma talks, but because there's many ways that our minds get entangled. I would say, I would say, what what would you say, Bill? I'm not going to say yet, because just lately, I've been wondering, what is the Dharma? I've been, I'm right, I'm rethinking a lot. Like that question I asked a few weeks ago, you know, what's, and, uh, and, and it's also, it's hard to remember all the suttas I've read. <laughs> I read, and I listen to the expositions in our in our groups. Um, pay attention. I don't, you know, write down key points. I try to to internalize all this, but there's a lot to remember. So. I like that's part of what seems the he's saying the Dharma that is seen here and now and it's not hearsay. So he's really pointing to experience. And I've kind of getting entangled is more like a, an experience, right? It's not um it's not 
just wisdom, you know, sayings that we've heard. There's a way in which we, or I'm saying, saying entangled leads to dukkha, is saying that uh, there's a way in which sometimes we feel stuck a little bit or we don't feel free or open. And what you said a few weeks ago when I asked the question was, well, guilt's been teaching present experience. So it's like a theme when we were going through the Majjhima Nikaya, right? We were kept on pointing to the importance of uh, experience as opposed to philosophy. And the Buddha in this, in early Buddhism, is definitely about uh, one's experience. He's not a metaphysicist. So I, I guess what I've been, the conclusion I've come to after many years is that, well, the Dharma, what the Buddha's teaching basically was understanding suffering and yeah. the source of suffering and release from suffering in um, maybe some coarse teachings maybe some subtle teachings um, and maybe how we get entangled is the same as that but I'm anyway I'm still turning it over in my mind nice nice I love it I love it that you're still turning it over that's perfect <laughs> and, and can you tell us where to find this Suda? Yeah, it's uh, in the Sutta Napata, yes. which is in the Kudaka Nikaya. Yes. Kudaka Nikaya, so the Sutta Pata, and it's the last chapter of the Sutta Napata called the Parayanavaga. So Sutta Napata 5.4, Metagu, the questions of Metagu. It's not in the Book of Eights? It's after the Book of The Book of Eights is the fourth. The Sutta Napata is big. The Book of Eights is the fourth chapter. We could say the Parayanavaga is the fifth chapter. It's after the Book of Eights. I can find it now. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, yeah, another. Um. I guess earlier I heard you talk about fundamental kind of thinking and whatnot. I, I was thinking to myself, like, would we ever be able to all be on the same team or something like that? And I thought, probably no, impossible. Um, it made me think of a philosopher, I forget who it was, but he pretty much talked about our past experiences, kind of inter- influenced the way we interpret stimuli and um, things coming in in life. And So I was just thinking we all are headed in different directions or have different experiences and t- interpret things differently and as we go through life, you know, something that may have been important at one point may totally be, you know, foreign later on in life or vice versa or whatnot. But it was interesting to hear you talk about fundamental kind of thinking or interpretation and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's being pointed to is this idea of like holding on and like this is the truth and everything else is wrong. Kind of that, uh, that there's a difference saying, well, this makes sense to me. It's that second step and everything else is wrong that gets us into trouble. Because I think you're right. All of us, of course, we're not going to have the same understandings at the same time. But it's the way that we make other people's or other ideas wrong, I guess, is the, what's being pointed to here. This dogmatism, fundamentalism. Yeah, thank you. During during part of that discussion, you mentioned specifically getting entangled with objects, meaning both physical objects but also mental constructions. And I think that you implied, and maybe you said directly, the sign that this is happening, the entanglement, is, is an I statement. 
I, me, or mine, is the beginning. And, and so, it, if you will, this is the, the signpost that you're head, heading into entanglement. I guess that's also the signpost the other direction, which is the, the non-self. To not being entangled means not being tied up with I, me, mine. Exactly. That's pretty much the, the, the nugget there. Yep, yep, yep. That entanglement and selfing and dukkha, right? These are almost, we could even say, are synonyms. And the selfing shows up when we're... Of course, we use I, me, and mine in language. It would be really awkward and odd if we didn't. But uh, just with, we could use that language without uh, creating this entity that's separate and distinct and from everything else. Thank you. Okay, so we're at the... Or did you want to say something quickly? No? no Jim, I thought somehow you did Okay, so... Thank you all uh, for your attention, and I wish you all a wonderful rest of the evening and a happy and safe 4th of July tomorrow. Thank you.